Well, greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus. That great shepherd of the sheep. We've come to gather in his name to be fed by him. And I'm uh, praying that the Lord will lead us into green pastures this morning, which I believe he already has. That's his will to take us into green pastures that we might be fed. For a message this morning, um, I'll start by asking a question. And the question is, what is the essence of the Christian life? I'll write that on the board here. is the essence of the Christian life. Now, I'd like for some response from a few of the brothers. And I know there's a certain fear in your heart that you're going to get this wrong because you might not choose the word I have in mind. But I'm prepared to write several words down. Um, And this is not a trick question. Rather, it's one to try and help us think deeply about the Christian life. Uh, So, what would you suggest is one, perhaps if we were to try to just distill it down to one word, what might be the essence of the Christian life or the Christ life? Okay. Christ likeness. Victorious. Faithfulness. Anything else? What? Obedience. Obedience. Love. Love. Well, I think we got it here the essence of the Christian life. Now, um, in 1 Corinthians 13, the end of the chapter, it says, Now abideth faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is charity. Actually, use the word charity there, um, which we often speak of as love, charity. So it does give a little bit of priority there. Uh, But if we were to look at these five ones here, and, okay, Christ-likeness, yes. We look at Christian. If you're going to be called Christian, you need to be like Christ. Um, Victorious, yes. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Faithfulness, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Obedience, the Holy Spirit is given to them that obey him. And love, the first and greatest commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Well, let's narrow it down a bit to the direction I'm thinking of this morning. If the essence of our Christian life is any of these, which of these 
would God use as a measure of where we are with him? I'm not quite sure. And there is a sense that a lot of these somewhat tie together. It's it's maybe a little hard to sort it out um, because in some respects they 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 are very closely linked and and I'm not trying to uh, split hairs here necessarily, but Let's consider this last one, love. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second commandment is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. But we could also look at that love then. If our devotion for God is, is where it should be, what does God see as the proof? of that love. And what I would suggest this morning is what God looks at as the proof of our love and devotion to him is number four here, obedience. Now, that's not separated from the love. It's simply God's measure of what our devotion truly is to him. That will, of course, result in Christ-likeness because, as we heard in the opening, Christ did always those things that pleased the Father. Christ was victorious. He was faithful uh, as a son over his own house. Moses was faithful in all his house, but Christ, as a son over his own house, was faithful in all things. When it comes to us, and we're going to look at a number of scriptures here, that God measures our level of devotion by obedience. Simply obedience. Now we could look at things that lead us to obedience. Um, But I have entitled the message this morning just by that one word, obedience. Now, a few more questions here for our consideration and reflection. These are not questions that are just quickly answered. Maybe, well, maybe the first one is. But if obedience to God is the true essence of the Christian life and the Christian faith. Let's ask this question. Do those who profess to love God, and we're talking here about all who would profess to love God and the ones we know are those in, in around us, the United States, for example. Do they give the proper priority to this key matter of obedience. Is that held in the highest regard, obedience, as a measure of our devotion to God? My answer to that is no, probably not. Well then further, do we as a church give it the proper priority or emphasis? And I would like to think that we do. In fact, I ask myself the question, don't, I mean, don't we speak it one way or another every Sunday morning? You know, almost. And yet, do we as a church give it the proper priority or emphasis? But then lastly, and maybe more importantly, how are you and I doing, doing in the matter of obedience? Beyond what we profess, are we doing it? Now back to an earlier question. 
about those who profess to love God, do we give the proper priority to the key of obedience? And I would look at the scriptures in in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus is speaking about the end time where he says that many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works? In thy name we've cast out devils. And then he will profess to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, ye that work iniquity. And that word iniquity means lawlessness. As someone else has paraphrased it, you act as though I never gave you a law to obey. So that brings us back to this matter of obedience. Beyond our profession of devotion to God is their obedience that backs it up and gives evidence. But what evidence or what uh, emphasis do we hear many times as a measure for devotion to God? Just in general, in, quote, Christendom around us. And it's evidenced by the writings, the books, the everything that comes forth from the, quote, Christian world. What, what is held forth as evidences of a devoted life to God? Well, Again, we don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail, but here would be some I would suggest. One is a, uh, an offering of praise to God. That is looked at as a high measure of devotion, praise and worship. Those who can produce songs, those who can produce worship experiences, Other acts of devotion, uh, whether it be praise or worship, maybe even service, but expressions of devotion, maybe even boldness to express your devotion in the face of opposition is lifted up as, as a good expression and essence of Christianity. And I don't deny that that is important and necessary, but let us just have it fixed in our mind that the true measure that God looks at is obedience beyond our words. If we look at the Old Testament example of Saul who disobeyed God and Samuel the prophet reproved him and he said to obey is better than sacrifice. If you look at the New Testament, it's clear that a sacrifice of praise, God is looking for. He wants it. He desires it from his people, but to obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, let's, let's look at several other passages of Scripture. One of the main ones uh, we want to consider, John chapter 14. And verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 21, verse 21 and following, John 14, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved to my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. There Jesus makes it very clear that love 
for God and devotion is measured by obedience. In fact, he gives the reverse there that he that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And we think of other words, many other words that Jesus used. Again, in Matthew chapter 7, he makes it clear that those who hear these sayings of mine and do them are like the man who builds his house upon the rock. Those are the ones that will enter into life. When Christ returns again, he will take vengeance on them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In in Revelation 22, it says that those that do his commandments may have right to the tree of life. Those who are doing the will of God enter into life. And we can multiply many other places in Scripture. The passage we're memorizing there, 1 Peter, uses it a number of times in chapter 1 and 2. If you remember, even in verse 2 of chapter 1, talks about obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, it refers to obedient children. And in verse 22, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Obeying the truth is an expression that captures the essence of Christianity. Obeying the truth. And in chapter 2, verse 7, unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient. The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. The disobedient are those who do not pay attention to his word. They will not hear, but turn their ears away from the truth. And so, a number of times in the scripture, it uses that expression, obeying the truth, obeying the gospel, obeying the word which was delivered unto you and such like. Romans 6.16 Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Second Thessalonians 3.14 If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Hebrews 5.9, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now if obedience is so important, why is it that in Christianity today, obedience is often looked at with just a bit of suspicion even, and a little bit of... um, Well, maybe a mixture of concern or disdain or really putting it in a lesser place than what it should be. And why is that? If it really is the essence, why this um, disregard? And I think the very clear and sobering warning there of Jesus, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. Many will say in that day, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful works? And he will say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, ye that work lawlessness, Well, we tend to shy away from the law and we can think of verses sprinkled throughout the New Testament that tell us that we are free from the law and uh, we are no longer under the law or bondage. We are, we are free and we think of all those verses. But we need to also consider that there are more verses that talk about obeying the commandments. It talks about the commandments of the Lord. 
the commandments of Christ, the commandments of us, the apostles. Um, If any man obey not our word, note that man. Christ is the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. The gates of the city are open to those who do his commandments. And, and all those verses, there is a law that God expects us to obey. And the question is, what is that law? Well, it talks about it as the perfect law of liberty. There is that law of liberty. There is the law of the commandments of Christ. There is a gospel for us to obey. I have uh, heard in some conversations and discussions a desire to minimize the weight of that word obey, especially the one there about inflaming fire, taking vengeance on them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As though that's not a strict or literal obeying of the law, it's more of a mind or heart to do God's will. Well, I'll acknowledge, yes, that is true, but what's the difference? I mean... Obey is obey. If we have no heart to do what God wills, are we really obeying? And the answer is no, we're not. If we're not willing to humble ourselves, yielding ourselves as his servants to obey. Well, we have a problem. And the problem is this. First of all, in Matthew chapter 6, where we have what we call the Lord's Prayer, where he taught his disciples to pray, he said, After this manner pray ye, and in that prayer is these phrases. It says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So, how is God's will done in heaven? Perfectly. Absolutely. No question. No pushback. No arguing. No attempt to bypass his will. Everything is done perfectly. According to his will. We know that rebellion or a, an attempt to usurp a place Pride, all of that was cast out of heaven. It cannot be tolerated. There shall no unclean thing enter into that city. So it is so completely done and so according to his will that we can scarcely wrap our mind around it. How that would be. Because we live in the presence of sin. And not just what is without, but our own desires and fleshly lusts which war against the soul, um, hinder us from that perfect obedience. But the prayer is that his will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So God's will for us is to be perfectly obeying his will. But here's the problem. We don't even understand perfectly what his will is. Many times. Now, it does need to be searched out. And the exhortation in one of the epistles is that we be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So it's incumbent upon us to be diligent to know, to seek out his will, to draw nigh to God, to search out his commandments, to make them great and precious in our sight. I'd like for you to turn with me to Psalm 119. And you probably already know this about Psalm 119, but it is poetry that specifically focuses on the commandments, the precepts, the doctrines of God, the law 
the commandments. David, as the author of this, in the original Hebrew, I understand that he went alphabetically. And so we have these subheadings here in Psalm 119, each one beginning with the first of the alphabet. In what we have divided here as eight verses, they would have all begun with the letter A. And section 2, 9 through 16, would have begun with the letter B. And while all that is lost in the translation, the entire focus is on following, doing, appreciating, understanding, and focusing on what God wants as given in his law, in his precepts, in his commandments. And he uses about five or six different terms. And there are only about a mere handful of verses in this whole psalm that don't use one or several of those words. So the whole focus is on this. Now let's look at several verses beginning at verse 41. Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings, and will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved. And I will meditate in thy statutes. Now there's a number of things in there, and throughout that whole psalm, but several I'd like to point out here. 44, so shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. That is a purpose of heart that, come what may, I will keep thy commandments. Verse 45, I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. He did not find the commandments of God restrictive, burdensome, or anything to be avoided. And if we carefully look at God's word, he makes it clear that that should be our mindset. God gave these laws, these commandments, if you will, the commandments of Christ were given for our good and not for our destruction. It says they're not burdensome or grievous. His burden is light and easy, and we should embrace it. We should love it. Verse 47, I will delight myself in thy commandments which I have loved. When we love his commandments, we will seek to do them. We will seek to abide by its precepts. We will do what he says next. Well, maybe several phrases down. Verse 48, I will meditate in thy statutes. What is the reason for meditating in his statutes? It would be to try and gain clear understanding. And maybe even consider whether we have diligently kept what he is really wanting us to do. That we go beyond the letter of the law and embrace the spirit of the law. Meditation helps us to do that. It helps keep in the forefront of our mind what needs to be done. The scriptures give us ample warnings about 
the dangers of lawlessness and the fact that it's going to be rampant in the end time and my mind has been on that much as I'm preparing for speaking at the fellowship meetings next weekend. That was the topics assigned to me and this is somewhat of my meditations and it'll probably come out a bit different in several messages there but it has some of this same content. Obedience. Obedience is important and the fact that lawlessness is abounding in the last days makes it perilous for us. There are several things that happen in this age of lawlessness. One of the first things perhaps is the fact that lawlessness abounds and we're thinking here of grievous lawbreakers such as murderers and thieves and violence and all those terrible things as they get worse and worse we almost become desensitized to some of the lesser ones we you know it's just not as bad and in that sense when that kind of lawlessness goes on and on people are more prone to participate in those things now that may not be the greatest danger for us I believe a greater danger for us is in the face of many simply disregarding the commandments of God and not considering them of value and we see all those around us doing likewise it tends to make it less important in our own sight and we become desensitized or not even consider how close we are to violating the commandments of God. I fear that's probably the greater danger that we face. It's not to minimize the other because we know of people who simply have given up on the faith because it just seemed like well it's no use you know I can't I can't make it but let us beware that we not become desensitized to the importance of keeping the commandments I have an illustration here a true story in regard to property boundaries and it's a bit illustrative of the uh, of the way that we keep or not keep commandments uh, here in the city of Kelowna there was a this is a number of years back but a part of town was developed with a number of houses that their backyard bordered on a farmers property it was like a, just a big open field behind the houses and, and this development had been built I'm not sure if the property originally was part of the field but in any case the backyard just bordered directly on the farmers field with no clear boundaries now you understand how properties are divided and so on there are boundaries and they are clearly defined on paper at the courthouse and on legal documents but when you actually walk out there and it's not visually marked it's a little difficult to know exactly where the line is and so what began to happen here as a few years went by as people mowed their backyards they began to encroach on the farmers field and he began to notice it seemed like his field was diminishing now as a homeowner going out to his backyard he would see no clear boundary there's no fence so he he looks this way to what his neighbor is doing and he looks this way to what that neighbor is doing and he decides well this is probably about where it is well you can imagine about how imprecise that is and so you mow and then the next time you mow and you make sure you get it all you know and as time goes by well one day this farmer decided it's time to set the standard and he called the surveyors and 
They came out and marked the boundary all across the backyards of those properties. And many of the owners were astounded. They come out there and discover this line that they had not paid heed to before. One man had gone so far as to set a small garden shed completely beyond his boundary and even poured a small concrete pad next to it. That's how far astray they had gone because there was nothing clearly marked. Now, if you consider that for a minute, how many of those homeowners set out to their backyard with the thought, there is no boundary and I don't care? Probably not many. All of them would have, in buying the property, would have been convinced that there are boundaries. Whose responsibility was it to maintain the boundary and stay within the lines? I would say it should rest with the individual homeowner. But again, there was no fence there. And so it became a matter of judging, looking this way and looking that. Well, I think this looks about right. And so here we go. You know, I think that's a lot how it is sometimes in the Christian life. We don't deliberately set out to be rebellious against God. We just aren't entirely careful to make sure that we're within the boundaries. And if we look to the right and to the left and consider what others are doing, it might look like we're pretty close. But is that really the standard that God holds us to? When it comes to the day of judgment, the commandments of the Lord will stand. And a day of reckoning is coming. And while this is probably a minor matter, as far as a property boundary, and in this case an illustration, it becomes far more serious when we're serious about keeping the commandments of the Lord and considering that it's not safe to just compare ourselves with others and think, well, I look this way and I look that and, well, this looks pretty close. We should be meditating on the commandments of the Lord. Which of the commandments... Are we most prone to violate? I've kind of set some of the principles in place here and even pointed out that sometimes by inattention, rather than a direct intent to violate, we simply by neglect allow the lines to erode. So what is it that may be most likely to trip us up. Well, I'm not sure that I can give a definitive list. There are many. Um, But I'm going to suggest several, and, and maybe I should preface it by saying this also, that in Christendom at large, it is very... Um, it is the end thing to be very opposed to the most extreme and outward wickedness. I mean, and, and here's uh, one I would give as an example. Most Christians across our land are still opposed to abortion. Churches across the board would at least outwardly and vocally oppose abortion. But you also consider that many of them have compromised on the issue of adultery where they can divorce a spouse and get remarried and also have greatly eroded the boundaries of sexual immorality and the matter of fornication 
and all of these sins that in many ways precede the great and terrible sin of abortion. It is a great and terrible sin, abortion is. We should, we should oppose it. We should speak against it and all of that. But why is it that it's very popular to be opposed to certain sins but overlook other sins that God also hates? Well, let's not fall into that camp. Let's not be um, outwardly opposed to certain sins while at the same time Perhaps unwittingly, we are allowing other sins to beset us. But if we think of those, not just the great things, but one of them that came to mind, and I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not saying necessarily this is a, uh, our greatest problem. But the matter of honesty, it's good for some good, serious reflection on what is our standard of honesty. Is it just what those around us do or say, or do we have a higher standard? Now let me just give one scripture that um, the phrase is in the founding of the epistle, it says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. You all know that verse, right? Do you all know the context of that verse? It can stand alone as a truth, no doubt, and that's why it's fixed in our mind, provide things honest in the sight of all men. The context in which Paul gave that was at the time when he was carrying the gift of money to the saints that needed it at Jerusalem. He had gathered it in one place. He was carrying it to the saints at Jerusalem. And he was saying here in this epistle, he said that this bounty is not from us. It came from the brothers over here and he's making sure that he's saying this so that they not think that he or his fellow workers are responsible for this blessing and this money that's going to the church of Jerusalem. And in that context, he says, providing things honest in the sight of all men. Wow, when you think of that, it's like, okay. Honesty means... Not just always saying the truth, but not even letting a false impression that might be to our advantage take root. You see, he wanted to make sure they understood this is, this is not our benevolence. This came from the brothers over here. So the standard for honesty is high. Ethical business practices. Ooh, this cuts deep, especially for the men here who are engaged in the things of this life, you know, providing for our families, and earning money, working. And there's a multitude of ways and a multitude of things that take place in the business place. Are we ethical? Yes, we want to be honest. Are we always kind? Are we ethical? You know, there's a lot of things. If we want to truly be pleasing to the Lord, having an honest weight, an honest measure, not seeking our own profit at the expense of another, not... Uh, And the list goes on and on. If we're not earnest about seeking God's will and making sure that we are providing things honest in the sight of all men and also 
that um, walking in wisdom toward them that are without, that, that our testimony might be clear. And that especially is one where we can't just stand here and look to the look to the left and look to the right and say, well, hmm. Yeah, it's pretty close. No, that's not going to cut it. It's time to meditate on his precepts. Meditate. Am I following God's commandments? What about the matter of of how I'm not sure what even term to use but how we touch the world or interact with the world. You know that is one area where God has laid out principles but there isn't always a visible boundary. Back to the illustration of these people's backyard. You know, it touches the daily things of our life. How we interact with the world. And there would be, you know, on the one hand, we know the verses that says that whoso will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And love not the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those are serious situations, but we're in this world. And Jesus even prayed, not that we'd be taken out of the world, but that we'd be kept in the world. So we have a job, a responsibility. We have have work to do. But where is the boundary? Where is the line? And sometimes it... I think of this in my illustration. As a man goes out there to mow his yard, it's inconvenient to search out where the boundary is. You go out there and, well, it'd look a little better if I mowed out a little farther and anyway my neighbors are doing it and, well, that's good enough. And I know in my mind there's a boundary somewhere but it's too inconvenient because you'd have to go in and dig out your paperwork and then you'd have to get out your measuring stick or your surveying device or whatever and actually go out there and, and figure out where the line is. And it simply is not convenient. And, it, you, you know, there's other things to do. There's the, you know, as soon as I get the mowing finished, it's time to start my grill and get the supper going and, and so on it goes. Do we take that mentality to the Christian life? It's too inconvenient to figure out. It's the boundary is indistinct. Well, that may be what brings us back to what Brother Earl was saying this morning about spending time with God. not allowing the cares of this life to choke out the word of God or the commandments of the Lord. I referred earlier to the emphasis that much of Christianity places, maybe misplaces, on what is true devotion to God. But they emphasize things like expressions of worship. They talk about intimacy with God in the context of an experience. Well, on one hand, we can say amen. That is good and necessary, but what does it really mean? And if that intimacy with God does not result in a more obedient walk and a more careful walk in what I actually do then it becomes a, um, just an empty, empty religion. It doesn't bear fruit. 
So the intimacy with God that we desire, that we even seek after, leads us to some fruit. There's a deeper end that is in view here, and that is to understand what the will of the Lord is. Can we go there? That would be my concluding question, I guess, for us to ponder. Is obedience the true essence of Christianity? And are we willing to do due diligence to seek out the will of God? To make sure that we are keeping the commandments of God. Not be swayed by the uh, impressions and concepts out there that view obedience with a bit of suspicion as though that somehow makes you think you're better than others or that somehow obedience might uh, lead you into bondage. You know, those, those thoughts are out there. They're, they're repeated many times as, you know, well, better, better watch out. You might, uh, you might even become a hypocrite. Well, yeah, hypocrisy is to be avoided. But one of the hypocrisies of our day is people making a profession, say, yes, I love God. I love the Lord. I even do all these things in the name of the Lord. But if it's not with obedience, in God's sight, that's hypocrisy. So let's be diligent that we may be found keeping the commandments. I think I'll conclude with that. May the Lord bless.